Hi, I'm Tyler Saltzi, pastor of Grace Bible Fellowship in Peru, Illinois. Our mission at Grace Bible Fellowship is to magnify the glory of the triune God in Christ Jesus by proclaiming God's word to advance the gospel in our lives and the world. We base who we are and what we do on the good news of Jesus. If you would like to find more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, you can visit our website at www.gbfperu.org. I'm so thankful you've come here to listen to God's Word proclaimed as we seek to understand it and be transformed by it. I hope you find this time meaningful, challenging, convicting, joyful, and even life-changing as we worship through the preaching of God's Word. have your Bibles, you can turn with me to Psalm 32 as we continue seeing what the Lord would have for us. Do you know a happy person when you see one? How do you know a person is, is happy? Do you have to ask them? I don't think so. Happy people look happy. Happy people act happy, and happy people love to talk about what makes them happy. If perhaps think about a child after their birthday, they look happy, they act happy, and they will tell you exactly why they are happy. Do you know what I got for my birthday? Do you want to see this gift that I got? Well, let me tell you about it. And I think without realizing it, children are displaying a biblical truth. That our happiness is brought to its full when we praise that which makes us happy. When we share what makes us happy with others, and then they join in our happiness. I mean, just try to keep a child from talking about or even looking at that gift that he just received for his or her birthday. You cannot. Trust me. They'll say, isn't it great? And you're like, yeah, yeah, it's great. It's like, no, isn't it? Isn't it great? Don't you see how great this toy is? And they won't stop until you say, yes, that is really, really great. C.S. Lewis touched upon this profound truth in his book, Reflections on the Psalms. And there he writes, I had not noticed that just as man or men spontaneously praise whatever they value, so they spontaneously urge us to join them in praising it. Isn't she lovely? Wasn't it glorious? Don't you think that magnificent? The psalmist, in telling everyone to praise, God are doing what all men do when they speak of what they care about. He goes on to write, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete till it is expressed. 
The delight is incomplete till it is expressed. Is this not true for the happy Christian? Do you not know that they are happy by how they look, how they act, and what they love to talk about? The happy Christian's delight in the Lord is not complete until it is expressed and shared and others join in their delight. And so it ought to be with all those who are daily living and the blessing of being forgiven. And so we see that in Psalm 32 this morning. See if you can hear it as we read it. Let's stand together out of reverence and honor for God's word. Psalm 32. A maskal of David. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Selah. I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Selah. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bits and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Almighty God, gracious Heavenly Father, send forth your word from your mouth as rain and snow from heaven that do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout. For your word shall not return to you empty, but it shall accomplish that which you purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which you send it. For faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Did you hear it as we read that psalm? Did you hear where the psalmist calls on others to join him in his praise? Did you see how his happy life overflowed from his heart for others to see and to partake in as well? The whole psalm is a song of overflowing happiness, an expression of happiness that completes the psalmist's happiness. And what is the root, what is the ground of this happiness? Is it not in the forgiveness of sins that we read about in the first two verses, 
This is happiness in the gospel. How do we know this happiness? We know it because sin has become bitter to us. You read, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and we know this ourselves. I'm a sinner. I can't stop sinning. What hope do I have before a righteous and holy God? And there's this blessedness that comes then because as that sin becomes bitter to us, and only then will Christ become sweet. For although all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, they are those who are justified, not by their works, by their righteousness, but by God's grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So what is this gift, this present that Christians rejoice in every day? That we are justified by God's grace through faith in Christ. That we look to his propitious sacrifice, his sacrifice which satisfied God's wrath and made him favorable to us. Our joy comes from knowing that our lawless deeds are forgiven, not through what we've done, but through what Christ has done. And this psalm is an overflow of this heart of the gospel. And it shouldn't surprise us because the entire Psalter, the collection of psalms, are prayers that we often think about, of, that we can pray individually about us, but they're not that only. The psalms are what many refer to as the people's hymn book. They are designed for corporate worship and the benefit of the whole people. So this is not an either-or, but a both-end. The Psalms are for me, and they are for us. And here in Psalm 32, what at first seems to be only the psalmist's individual praise to God for his forgiveness is actually being sung with others in mind. Did you hear it when we read it? Verse 6, Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. And perhaps we picture the assembly of God's people in the hearing of this song. They're witnessing the psalmist proclaim how blessed are the forgiven. And perhaps while we see that he does speak in the first person in verse 3, right, for when I kept silent, that's not how he begins the psalm. There's actually a general proclamation in verse 1. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. In verse 2, blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. You can almost hear him saying, blessed is anyone in this assembly, in this, in this congregation, whose transgression is forgiven. Blessed is anyone in the hearing of this against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. And so in verse 6, we see this overflow of happiness is actually intended for the ears of fellow worshipers to join him in this song. And what does he say? He says, May the godly who hear this song do as I did and offer a prayer to you, God. You are gracious and you are forgiving. May they do this at a time when you may be found. And at the end of verse 7, we read that the Lord surrounds the psalmist with shouts of deliverance. Well, who are those who are shouting? 
Might it be those we read about in verse 11, all you upright in heart, those who would celebrate the Lord's acts of deliverance? And what specifically do we see here? As we peel back the layers of the onion, as it were, about this overflow of his experience and his happiness, I think what we see is an overflow of instruction to those hearing him. It's a teaching. And this is what we should remember, we should expect, for we remember that the psalmist here is none other than David himself. He is the king of Israel, the anointed one of the great king, Israel's covenant lord, Yahweh. And as the king of Israel, he is to be the ideal Israelite, a representative of the people before God, an example for the people. So the king's faithfulness is tied to the welfare of the people. But as the king, David is also God's representative to rule over the people, but not like the godless kings of the surrounding nations and their own authority and power, but as an instrument of the Lord's rule over his people. As this godly king, he instructs the people in God's ways as God himself would. We read in Psalm 25, verse 8, Good and upright is the Lord, therefore he instructs sinners in the way. So in verse 6, we see the instruction for the godly to pray to God at a time when he may be found. Now a couple of things here. Notice that the godly are not the sinless. But these are those who are marked by God's loving kindness The godly are the ones who are not sinless, but those who confess their sins. And what do the godly pray? Or rather, why do the godly pray? It's firstly because God is able to protect and preserve and deliver. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. So they pray to God because he is able to protect and preserve them. But they also pray, and they pray now because there is a time when God may not be found. So what is this picture that David wants us to see here? What is this rush of great waters. Well, water in the Bible is often a sign of death and of judgment. And here we read that God will deliver the godly from the rush of these great waters from death. So I believe what we're meant to call to mind is the account of the flood in Noah. If you recall, there were those who were able to be delivered in the ark. that there was godlessness and lawlessness in the world, and God was going to judge through a flood that covered the whole earth. 
And yet the Lord was able to, and then did in his grace, bring Noah and his family into the ark. But once the Lord shut them in, God could no longer be found as his judgment began to fall. We may also think of the Nile, which Pharaoh used to bring about death, the death of the sons of the Israelites, but also delivered Moses in a little ark. We may also think of the water of the Red Sea delivering the people of God as they passed through safely on dry land, but then the waters came rushing down on the Egyptians in judgment and in death. And so, too, we should think of the waters of baptism. For what do we read in Romans 6? But those who are baptized in those who are baptized are baptized into Christ Jesus' death, but are preserved by Christ and then raised to new life. In a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. So let us heed the instruction here. Let us call on the name of the Lord. For everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Have you not yet called on the name of the Lord to save you? Then do so today. For now is the favorable time. Now is the day of salvation. No longer harden your hearts Seek him while he may be found. But this is not just an instruction about saving faith, but for daily faith. For the gospel is not just what saves us, but what continues to save us. For this is the gospel that was preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word that was preached to you. So dear brother or sister in Christ, have you sinned and you feel the waters of judgment about to engulf you, even as David did? Then don't hide your sin, but confess your sin and confess your sin while God may be found. As we continue going through the psalm here, we see that the psalmist says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. In verse 8, I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Now there are some biblical scholars who think that this is actually God who is speaking here. That God is the one speaking back to the psalmist, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. But I think that this I is David himself, that he is continuing to speak to his people. He is, as God's representative, continuing to teach and to counsel as the godly king. For who was behaving like a horse or a mule? Was it not David himself? He was the one who had kept silence about his sins and he was the one who needed the bits and the bridle of suffering in order to stay near. In Psalm 119, we read, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. David seems to be saying here, learn from my example. Don't be like me. 
And so here we see that the king's forgiveness wasn't simply for his own sake, but for the sake of the people of God. We see this idea in Psalm 51. If you would go ahead a few pages in your Bible, Psalm 51. There specifically is the psalm talking about when he was confronted by Nathan about his sin with Bathsheba. And here we can read how the Lord had used even the sin in David's life for the people of God. Psalm 51. Begin in verse 7. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Here we see this affliction, which we also saw in 32, Psalm 32. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. But David doesn't stop there in verse 12, verse 13. Then I will teach transgressors your way, and sinners will return to you. So I believe these instructions in verse 8 and 9 from Psalm 32 come from the king as they would come from God himself for the benefit of God's people, instructing us, teaching us the way that we should go, counseling us with his eye upon us. And what does David say to the people? Be not like a horse or a mule. Well, what are horses and mules like? They are those without understanding. A horse or a mule must be curbed with a bit and a bridle or will not stay near. There are those who only obey, who only obey under compulsion, do not obey out of love or gratitude or joy. So don't be like me. <laughs> don't need to be curbed by a brit or a bridle or you will not stay near. Obey out of love and out of joy. And who are these to stay near to or what? They are to stay near the one who will instruct and teach you the way that you should go. They are the ones who are going to heed this instruction. So we should first and foremost stay near to the Lord. He is the one from whom we learn and we are instructed. And then by extension, we should stay near to the people of the Lord, the people of God, the church. For it is among the people of God that we have encouragement, that we have those who would see perhaps the sin in our lives. And as that sin is hardening our hearts, there would be those among God's people who would say, what you're doing is not good. Hear the Lord's instruction, repent while he may be found. 
And they would instruct you, they would instruct me on the way. And what is this way? It's the way of blessing. It's the blessing and the joy and the happiness that is found in the preaching of the gospel. So the psalmist, King David here, is saying, don't keep silent. That's not the way of blessing. That is the way of bones wasting away and groaning all day long and your strength being dried up as by the heat of summer. Instead, acknowledge your sin to God. Do not deceive yourself and cover your iniquity. Confess your transgressions and he will cover your sins. So as we read this psalm, as we begin to understand its meaning, we should ask ourselves, what is this application? Perhaps we would see the application as we did last Sunday, as those who would confess their sins, acknowledge their sins. Yes, that would be true. That is a good application. That is part of what we are to get from this. But I think that there is perhaps more that we can learn as God's church today. And here's where I'm going to take us beyond the principles that we read about in this psalm to a, a view of the people of God throughout the Bible and for the people of God today. For just as we read that this psalm is a means of a happy life for ourselves, can that happiness, if it is a true happiness, a happiness in the glorious gospel of the happy God be kept in? Or does it, and it must need to overflow from our hearts, it must infect, as it were, how we look and how we act and what we praise. Certainly, this happiness that we have should overflow to others within the church. Just as we've learned from earlier that this Psalter, the Psalms, are the hymn book of God's people. So we would read in Colossians 3.16, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanks, thankfulness in our hearts to God. So yes, this is meant to be for within the church. It overflows from our hearts to others with whom we gather, with whom we call brothers and sisters in the Lord. But it overflows even beyond that as well, does it not? For it goes beyond our local church. That's what we read in our call to worship this morning, Psalm 145, verse 10. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. Yes, the holy ones, the saints, the Christians shall bless you. They shall give praise to your name. Verse 11. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. And so we are reminded that the church is a chosen race, that we are a royal priesthood, that we are a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, not in and of ourselves, for ourselves, but that we might proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Which is why we can read in Matthew 28 that great commission where Jesus says, 
All authority under heaven has been given to me, so go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So this overflow of happiness begins in our hearts, overflows to one another in the church. And as it overflows, we take this joy, this happiness, to all the nations we read about. So they might also observe and obey all that Jesus has commanded. But I think there is also an overflow of our happiness in God in those places outside of our church and yet not on foreign soil. That this overflow of our gladness in the gospel would take place in what some have referred to as our local mission field. What am I thinking of here? But our, our homes, our neighborhoods, the places where we work, places where we play, where we live, where God has placed us in his divine purposes. And we actually see this in Acts 1.8, where Jesus, before he was going to ascend to the Father again, he tells the apostles that they were to be his witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So yes, this gospel will be proclaimed throughout the world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. But it does not begin with the whole world. It begins right there in Jerusalem, as it were. It begins right here where we are today. And then as it is proclaimed here, it departs and it goes throughout all Judea and all Samaria to all the ends of the earth. So what do I think is an application of this psalm? I think it is that we are to be witnesses here where we are for Christ. And to be a witness where we live sounds daunting. We might even prefer to go somewhere where no one knows us. Send me there to Africa, to Asia, to some place where they don't speak English. Personal evangelism sounds intimidating. And why is that? It's because this is where we live. And this is where the cost of proclaiming the gospel might become very, very real to us. There are what theologians call pain lines to be crossed in proclaiming the gospel. When we know proclaiming the gospel will cause division and ostracization, you're going to lose friends. Your reputation may take a hit. People may not like you anymore. We could lose our jobs. Perhaps one day, not too far off, we may even lose our lives. So I am sympathetic to this, for it's where I live as well. This reluctance to share the gospel with others. Can I cross that line? Can I talk about Christ? But I think this is where Psalm 32 ministers to us. 
because perhaps our evangelism, our witness, and proclaim the good news isn't even something that we deliberately do or think about, but simply is the overflow of a life that is steeped in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That as I wake up in the morning, the first thought in my mind is that how happy I am that I am forgiven by Christ. That even when I don't feel like it, and I, my heart is dead, when the last thing I want to think about is God, I can turn to Christ through his word and know that it is not on my accomplishments, not on my labors that I am right before God, but because of what Christ has done. And then I can take joy in that, that even that sin of that morning is forgiven me. And then I carry that throughout the day. As I go from one thing to the next, and the world seeks to overflow, seeks to engulf me by the troubles or the sin I see as I respond sinfully to a situation that I'm in, I go back and think of Christ. I think, blessed am I, for I have been forgiven. My joy is in him. And how would it not be then that as we are laying hold of this gospel day by day, moment by moment, that as that is our joy, would it not necessarily flow out of us to others? That they would see us walking down the hallway in the grocery store, in our homes, among our children, and they would say, this guy, this guy, they're happy. Why are they happy? What is going on here? And then we would have a natural opening to preach the gospel. The Welsh minister Martin Lloyd-Jones put it this way in a sermon 60 years ago, but it is timeless, I think, for there is nothing new under the sun. In this sermon, he says, as we face the modern world with all of its trouble and turmoil, and with all its difficulties and sadness, Nothing is more important than that we who call ourselves Christians, who claim the name of Christ, should be representing our faith in such a way before others as to give them the impression that here is the solution and here is the answer. In a world where everything has gone so sadly astray, we should be standing out as men and women apart people characterized by fundamental joy and certainty in spite of conditions, in spite of adversity. Dear brother and sister, would you be like that child on Christmas morning who... One day of the year, they don't sleep in. <laughs> they can't sleep in. They get up, they're out of their bed. Why? Because they hope and pray, and they've seen <laughs> that gift underneath the tree that awaits them, and they can't wait to open that gift. Would we be like that every morning, that we couldn't wait to open up the gift of the gospel every day and say, how blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven. Thank you, Jesus, for forgiving me my sin, for supplying all that I need to have peace with you, to have my rest in you. For if you did not spare your own son, 
but gave him up for gave him up for us all, how will you not also with him graciously give us all things? So if God has given Christ to us to forgive us of our sins, making peace between us, how will you not supply all that you need every moment of the rest of the day? And as we bring that to mind, as we meditate upon that, how happy we are in our good and gracious Lord, it would be evident to others. And we want to show other people about why we're happy. I'm so happy. God has been so good and gracious to me. Can I tell you about him? He's really great. You can have a gift just like mine. You can have mine, but you can have a gift just like mine. You can have it today. The psalmist seems to be saying here, and all the sorrows for your sin and all the sorrows that you know in this world, they will not ultimately drown you because he'll rescue you like he rescued me. I know it. I've tasted even this morning how he's rescued me from my sin. And I'll come alongside you, and we can follow this path together. So perhaps our solution to crossing those pain thresholds, those pain lines in evangelism, is not ultimately to be thinking about strategies or techniques or even ourselves, but to be thinking upon Christ and his love controlling us. Verses 10 and 11 of Psalm 32, the psalmist says there, Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. That's the gift that we would have. Steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord to save him, to deliver him who has delivered him, who is delivering him even now. And then we would be like those in verse 11. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. And then our happiness would be complete for it is expressed. Let's pray together, church. Lord, there is a way that we have known full of sorrow and affliction and suffering. But we know that that is a foretaste only of the eternal suffering and affliction that awaits those who do not pray to you in a time when you may, may be found. I pray, Lord, for myself. I pray for your church that we would daily strive to taste of your goodness and your steadfast love as it surrounds us. And that we would express our happiness in the congregation of the righteous, of those upright in hearts, that we are glad in you. We are happy in the happy God. And as we do this day by day, week by week, year after year, we are those who remember that this joy, this happiness that we have tasted is but a foretaste of our ultimate salvation that is nearer than when we first believed. And how we long for that day, Lord, when Every last trace of our sin is gone. When you wipe away every tear from our eyes, 
and even death shall be no more. For there shall be no more mourning or crying or pain. The former things have passed away. You say, Lord, in your word, surely I am coming soon. To which your church says, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen.